0: This visit to Bannock isn't like the usual daylight visitations that celebrate the pioneering spirit of the Wild West. Tonight, nearly Hallows' Eve, the shadowy facades of the false-faced buildings dance ominously in the lantern light, setting the tone for the conjuring of the town's darker history. Will you enjoy the pain, crows the narrator? Will you relish the hangings, the spilled blood, the shredded flesh, Bannock's Ghost Walk is produced as a hysterical historical production. But who takes ghosts seriously in American culture, especially when framed within the playfully exaggerated Gothic production? This question is especially interesting in light of the rampant rise of ghost tourism and because recent academic scholarship has privileged the specter as a cultural expression which often voices some traumatic historical oppression. In this presentation, I utilize Western American history, Ghost tourism scholarship and Gothic studies, along with relevant Bannock documents and staff commentary, to examine the history, evolution, and narrative impact of the ghost walk. After highlighting popular demands for deadness in Western Ghost Town sites, I transition into ghost tourism discussions and then use these contexts to examine how Bannock's event navigates dark history and traumatic distances. My goal is to contextualize ghostly narratives at Bannock to better understand how such expressions play with the boundary between difficult and celebratory heritage at such popular sites. In her article, Haunted by Rhyolite, Learning from the Landscape of Failure, Patricia Limerick critiques popular celebratory conceptions of America's western ghost towns. Limerick emphasizes the lack of critical attention to the failed aspect of such sites. Remarking, the only remotely conceptual issue that comes up in the guidebooks is the question of comparative deadness. Limerick specifically targets ghost town enthusiast Muriel Sibyl Wally as the progenitor of this singularly unreflecting cult of ruins. Limerick's comments in this article are now 30 years old, but her critique importantly backgrounds the way Western ghost towns have come to represent a mythical heroic past while also crucially articulating deadness as a central desire within Western heritage. In fact, as J.T. Coleman notes, Woolley's desire for deadness was so pervasive that locals often complained that her sketches made their locales more decayed than they actually were, leading Coleman to label Woolley the prim reaper. And also reminds me of Monty Pride thought. <laughs> While Limerick largely dismisses deadness, I want to emphasize it as it signifies popular desire that ghost town state parks must navigate. And this is relevant for both building preservation strategies and ghost stories. (laughs) Polling for Bannock's pivotal 2001 management plan revealed that visitors appreciated the arrested decay preservation strategy of the previous two decades with key themes being decay, pre-modern, pre-technology, and especially abandonment. Notably, the famous ghost town of Bodie, California also utilizes this arrested decay approach. While preservationists argued you can't arrest decay, and emphasize the need for a varied preservation strategy in Bannock, the simulation of decay remained a priority. The demand for a not and forgotten and not hopelessly dying preserved materiality signifies the anxious desire for a distinct break from today's tech heavy fast paced perhaps hyper alive culture one that too quickly forgets the past such buildings in my mind effectively act as embalmed ancestral spirits and naturally they inspire stories cultural geographer Tim Enzer remarks Industrial ruins are an intersection of the visible and the invisible. The people who live there are not there, and yet their absence manifests itself as a presence through the shreds and silent things that remain. Enzo references the ruin as a type of dissonant spectral agent, where he says the over and done with remains, and where disruptive ghosts haunt the desire to pin memory down in place. He further explains that these are the marginal sites of the West, now bypassed by the flows of money, energy, people, and traffic with which they (coughs) once were enfolded. These statements borrow from recent spectral studies discussions which privilege the ghost's capacity to, in Edenser's words, recall that which has been forgotten, whether through deliberate political strategies or because the horrors of the recent past are too painful to confront. This interpretation of the disruptive ghost that is connected to place relates to sociologist Avery Gordon's sentiments. She says, ghosts are characteristically attached to the events, things, and places that produced them in the first place. By nature, they are haunting reminders of lingering trouble. Edenser illustrates both ruins and ghost stories' abilities to haunt and uses them as autonomous agents that exist outside of dominant cultural narratives, capable of disrupting Western civilization's faith in unbridled progress, technology, and capitalism. This is an updated discussion of Limerick's concerns regarding the nature of ruin, as she essentially is asking, why are we not more haunted by Western ruins? While I would agree that ruins and ghosts haunt in a way that point to an unresolved history, how such hauntings are managed and narrated in cultural expressions determines their impact. This latter point is not sufficiently realized in many spectral studies discussions, but bringing in ghost tourism discussions connect us with on-the-ground studies of ghostly narratives and in a way which sheds lights on Bannock's ghost walk. Europe and the United States have experienced a bewildering growth in ghost tourism during the last two decades. Historian Taya Miles calls it a tsunami, a multi trillion dollar global industry. And Michelle Hanks defines ghost tourism as any form of leisure or travel that involves encounters with or the pursuit of knowledge of the ghostly or haunted. And this includes, but is not limited to, ghost walks, commercial ghost hunts, nonprofit ghost hunts, and paranormal investigations. Hanks remarks that while such ghostly outings occasionally orbit around the mundane event, most ghost tours in Europe and the U.S. share a fixation on the dark past. Dark meaning some troubling event, to refer back to Gordon's statement. Glenn Gentry more specifically labels ghost tourism as an important yet grossly underanalyzed aspect of the larger phenomena known as dark tourism, which refers to the transformation of death and disaster into saleable tourism-based commodities. Obviously, perceptions of ghost tourist destinations don't necessarily fit with the seriousness accorded to sites of death and disaster. For example, we don't have ghost tours of the 9-11 World Trade Center site, nor of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in DC. Yet ghost tourism does profit off certain types of death and disaster. This leads me to think about how perceptions of what I'm calling traumatic distance function at such sites, and how these places of heritage are perceived across the dark history to celebratory history spectrum. Of course, in Montana, ghost tourism is popping up everywhere. There are numerous haunted house showings of old mansions, museums, and institutions, and it seems seems like almost every town has their own version of a ghost walk. Even history conferences capitalize on spectral bodies. Bannock's Ghost Walk is put on by the Bannock Association and holds just four shows during the last weekend in October. Yet, according to interpretive officer John Phillips, has become Bannock's largest fundraising event. Get your tickets well in advance, at least least a month in advance. Bannock's ghostly entertainments began in the early 1990s, starting with late night haunted house tours of the Mead Hotel. Visitors rushed to hear stories of young Dorothy Dunn who drowned in a dredge pond in 1916. Dorothy is Bannock's most famous absent-but-present resident attraction and, reportedly, can often be seen in the upper floor of the building, the water still dripping off her sky-blue ribbon-tied dress. Angie Hurley, who managed Bannock in the early 2000s after interning at the park in the 90s, recalled that their plan expected for only around 50 people. However. When the cars started arriving, Hurley remarked, the headlights, they just stretched on forever. Over a thousand people came to the haunted house in each of the first two years it opened. Interestingly, the spectral gold, gold rush caused a stampede that had very real material effects. The traffic wear on Bannock's most notable building, the Mead Hotel, was causing serious concern. Paul Stewart, a Dylan Tribune writer and member of the Bannock Association, not only had a voice in the conceptual change, but agreed to write new, more expansive strips, more expansive scripts. John Barrows also had a heavy hand in this from the Bannock Association. But for Stewart, this was perhaps more than fitting because he was not only a recent transplant from Old World Scotland with its legions of Gothic specters, but was an actor who had guided ghost tours in Scottish castles. The event was resurrected in a ghost walk form that led visitors around the preserved town with stage kits in various areas. The stories range from historically accurate Bannock-specific accounts like Dorothy Dunn's Down, Dorothy drowning to more generalized western frontier legends such as the demented school teacher. Hurley called it a historical hysterical show, a fun, educational way to learn about the history of Bannock. Yet, she said, it tells some pretty grisly stories of some of the darker sides of the old mining town. John Phillips, who is also a veteran ghost tour participant of almost two whole decades, told me that Bannock still holds to this view. The hysterical historical phase offers an apt designation for a park catering to the often difficult to negotiate demands for spectral heritage. However, while such plays can connect people with Bannock's history, America's cultural disregard for ghosts, visitors' expectations to see actual ghosts, And the tendencies of the narratives to keep historical trauma in the past threatens to detract from the actual history. The opening narration of the Ghost Walk reiterates Bannock's standing as Montana Territory's first capital, and reaffirms the idea of Bannock as the town that forever sealed in the minds and hearts of men what the Wild West was truly about. However, the celebratory nature of Bannock is immediately questioned. The narrator remarks a few called it heaven some called it purgatory while others have another word for it hell these souls he continues are doomed forever to repeat in endless eternity that which they experienced in their short lives here in bannock note the narrative excessiveness the puritanical anxieties and a fearful sense of entrapment in repetition and space these qualities all reveal gothic narrative tendencies The latter two themes of repetition and entrapment uncannily resemble what Chris Baldick remarks as the Gothic's ability to portray a fearful sense of inheritance in time with a claustrophobic sense of enclosure in space. And such a comment haunts with the images of preserved ruins themselves. Indeed, if these arrested decay walls could speak, they might very well utter the same lamentations regarding an unnatural stasis. While these ghosts could very well be articulating building complaints and the complaints of preservationists faced with this impossible task, they are often telling the stories of such buildings in ways that potentially build heritage. This is apparent, for example, in The Crying Babies at the Bessette House, a skit which is inspired by visitors claiming to hear the wail of babes from Amid Bessette's old house. In a 1995 edition of the Bannock Free Press, park employee Kevin Heaney recounts that the house was an infirmary where babies died of various dis- diseases, including colic, typhoid fever, and smallpox. Many graves in the cemetery are of children who died in the 1880s and quite a few from around 1913. Heaney re- relayed the speculation that the baby's suffering was so intense that it somehow imprinted the noise of their crying onto the walls or floors of the cabin. Whether Beset's old house emits cries for certain, I don't know. But the story does allow ghosts to relay a darker history that creates heritage by telling a trauma attached to a specific place. As Gothic tourism scholar Emma McAvoy remarks, ghost walks can provide potent ways of talking about place. They can be expressive about experiences of change, loss, and passing. They can be a celebration of people's sense of identity of a town, village, or city. Skits such as Chop Chop, The Death of Nellie Page and It's Hard Being a Girl in Bannock all crucially allow women to express an often undervalued Western role. As one self-aware line in the skit It's Hard Being a Girl remarks, we worked and we toiled without any glory. Nellie Paget's skit tells a well-known piece of regional folklore and is interesting because it adds an important nuance to the stereotypical role of hurdy-gurdy girl. Nellie, rumored to be Helen Patterson, as the legend goes, left her fiancé in Illinois to pursue the American dream in the frontier, but was ultimately shot during a lover's quarrel, and undead Nellie exclaims, I found the men who would pour the shining dust, gold dust into my grasping hands. Such a comment, as no doubt mining town gender historian Mary Murphy would attest, dispels the whore with a heart of gold stereotype. Nellie doesn't fit with the role of powerless, demure girl who just happens to find herself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Neither is she the second wave, domesticating female, taming those who tame the West. She's an independent, entrepreneurial capitalist, mining the miners for all they were worth. Nellie's actual story will probably never be known, but it's interesting how, in this case, the narration provides nuance in spirit to challenge dominant stereotypes, nuance that can be backed up with critical history such as Murphy's article The Private Lives of Public Women that reveals a wide range of roles and agency for women in the West. Of course, The Ghost Walk wouldn't be complete without some skits dealing with Henry Plummer. I'm not going to debate Plummer's innocence here, but emphasized that the skit, Plummer and the Banquet interacts with essential Montana history while revealing additional Gothic elements. The skit draws out Plummer's charming and duplicitous character, a perfect fit for a Gothic villain, while detailing the way he curried favor with Bannock's power players. As noted by Alan Smith, the American Gothic was fixated on the frontier experience and had anxieties about popular democracy and the relative absence of a developed society, all of which pertained to vigilante history. Beloit also points out that racial issues concerning both slavery and Native Americans are central themes in American Gothic literary tendencies. So, it is no surprise that two skits deal with indigenous issues, at least from the settler's point of view. The Horse Prairie Mine skit, for example, has an old-timer telling the grisly tale of how the skulls, man, woman, or child, of Bannock peoples were tossed in the mineshaft after being murdered by a marauding cowpokes. The narrator concludes... Yep, them was hard days, and sometimes our forefathers were bloodthirsty buggers. But them days are gone for good now. It's first notable that it is not the obvious villain who does this historic injustice, but America's nostalgic sweetheart, the cowboy, thus interrupting Western narrative assumptions. However, while the old-timer admits to an element of settler colonial guilt when he says local townsfolk kept their bloody secret to themselves, He also remarks, as I mentioned, "Them days are gone for good now. This notably illustrates the Gothic theme where, according to Emma McAvoy, the abuses of the past are contrasted with the liberality of the present. This tale appears to be more folklore than actual history, but nevertheless, such a narrative framing threatens to keep the darker aspects of America's settler colonial history erroneously in the past. In doing so, it detracts from continual generational indigenous traumas and ongoing issues as seen in the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic that plagues modern-day Montana. Them days are not gone for good. This skit also problematically capitalizes on one version of the Indian burial ground motif that haunts American narratives. Such ghostly absent presences relate to Renee Berglund's argument that the Native American suffers from spectralization American nationalism, she argues, is sustained by writings that conjure forth spectral Native Americans, in which Native American ghosts function as both representations of national guilt and as triumphant agents of Americanization. In such instances, ghosts may carry the voice of a neglected past, but are kept there via various cultural narrative devices, such as the vanishing Indian trope. This overlaps with Taya Miles' critique of ghost tourism in the South. After noting the Indian burial ground theme present there at one particular site, she summarized that the overriding Indigenous theme was that the Native people were present only as part of the landscape, existing before history rather than in it, and creating the surface upon which the dramas of other groups would later play out. <coughs> Leaving Natives in the past is an act of traumatic distancing. This also occurs during the commercialization of black slave bodies, as Miles notes that the ghost story can cultamine certain social memories while simultaneously having the power to cloak African-American lives in ways that reestablishes racial and gender norms from the antebellum era without context, caution, or critique. Thus, spectral absent presences are turned into present absences when the historic figure is mentioned but not properly contextualized. It's helpful accessing the Gothic here to better realize how narrative context highlights and occludes certain places, things, and ideas. However, contextual issues also extend to aspects of presentation and beliefs regarding the paranormal. Take Nellie Pageant's skit, for example. This particular skip removes the cloak of stereotypical female participation in the Western dream by recognizing greater nuance. Yet. If the narrative is framed with Halloween and overly excessive gothic thrills, who will appreciate the challenged stereotype? Scholars are quite divided on how much history transference actually takes place during edutainment events, as they are called. But I remain leery that too much boo is placed in the taboo, dark history, to really get something out of it. And, in a way, I'm offering this presentation to further draw out the historical context within Bannock's ghost walk. But there's also the issue of real ghosts and how expectations regarding the paranormal affect history at at such sites. As Michelle Hanks documents, one English curator lamented after his house was featured on the most haunted TV show, people come here expecting some sort of ghost experience now. They're not here for the history. John Phillips mentioned that the attendance for both the Ghost Walk and Bannock in general shot up dramatically after the show was featured on the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures seven years ago. He thought that a lot of visitors simply came expecting to see ghosts. So it's quite apparent that we Westerners like to celebrate our ruins and our ghost stories. This is important in itself as it says something about the speed of our culture and the way that change seems to threaten to forget the ghosts that got us here. Secondly, from a state park perspective, it takes an incredible amount of effort and flexibility to present a nuanced interpretation of the past while also having to cater to perceptions of such while also having to cater to the perception of such sites as haunted. Dylan resident Hannah Telling, for example, remarked that she knew people that believe Bannock was so haunted that they'd avoid the place entirely. John Phillips also remarked that ghost hunters are increasingly demanding special privileges, such as after-hours access and strict silence and isolation during their visits. And not only do the buildings need constant attention, but so do the skits. Phillips told me that the skit The Murder of Chief Snag" was recently removed due to the scalping scene, and he did this several times to illustrate the effect, and actors in Red Face. This points to the ongoing negotiation between popular desires and recognition of the nearness of trauma in regards to indigenous oppression. But as this was an actual event, it also highlights the question, isn't this important dark banach history and heritage and therefore worthy of retelling? Of course, enough of these stories may, be, may put the celebratory nature of the site too far into the dark history aspect. These are important questions to keep in mind. And this relates to the fact that Western cultures ghostly narratives are quite complex. At face value, ghosts can be said to be the perfect manner to express ambivalent cultural histories. The ghost can safely express the dark and difficult neglected past because the narrative itself isn't taken seriously. In the West, this is a deadness issue. Uncannily similar to the interpretation and management of ruins themselves, while the ghost has the haunting capacity to reveal what has been historically forgotten or neglected, how that knowledge is framed or presented heavily influences historical perspectives. I think in some cases ghost tourism sites can promote heritage and identification with place, and while I can appreciate the hysterical historical framing of the ghost walk, for the reasons I've mentioned I remain leery of the history being subverted by the thrills of the evening. I'd suggest that at the end of the evening a pamphlet be handed out that further historicized and contextualized the evening's narratives. However. For the time being, I hope to have added a little more history and context regarding what's at stake as Western ghost stories navigate the traumatic distance of the West's darker, often more difficult history.
1: Thank you.